Today we'll be discussing the 30th anniversary of the single soundtrack, and we'll be discussing borderline personality disorder. This is Dr. vs. Comedian. I'm Dr. Asif Doja, and this is the Doctor of Laughs. Who is on mute? Not a real doctor. Ali Hassan. Every episode, I pick a topic for Ali from comedy and entertainment, and I question him about it. Then Ali picks a topic from medicine and health and grills me on that topic. Today, we'll be discussing the legendary soundtrack from the movie Singles, which was released 30 years ago last month. And we'll be discussing borderline personality disorder. So let's get right into these things, Ali. Uh, a lot of stuff yes. to talk about today. Exciting stuff. So the single soundtrack was released 30 years ago last month. And so this was a soundtrack that uh, the reason why we're talking about it is a very influential soundtrack. It kind of um, was riding high in the grunge movement. And it's a lot of people's introduction to a lot of bands uh, on the soundtrack. Uh, for me, especially, including Pearl Jam, uh, Soundgarden and uh the smashing pumpkins but hold on let's talk about the movie oh, first okay. also very influential for reasons that look I, I was like why did i like this movie so much i you know it's 91 92 i mean we are basically fresh out of, out of high school brown kids what did we connect with with like we we have no musical talent matt dillon long-haired we did well i had long hair but we we you know i couldn't play a guitar what did we love about this movie? It says, the basic description is, a group of 20-somethings uh, struggle to find love in grunge-era Seattle. Right. So let's, and in that yeah. lies the secret to what we loved, obviously. Let's take a, a little bit of a backtrack here for a second. So this movie was written and directed by Cameron Crowe. And uh, people may know him. He His big claim to fame at the beginning was he wrote Fast Times at Ridgemont High. And then later on, he wrote and directed Say Anything, which was his movie right before this. These are good good movies, and, and, and so is Singles. And I like Singles, but people often say it's one of his best, Singles, which is a huge disrespect to... Jerry Maguire? Jerry Maguire, dude. Jerry yeah. Maguire's the best. No. Jerry Maguire is top dog. Listen, I'm, I'm actually agreeing with you, and I think... Uh, I love Say Anything, and I love Jerry Maguire. Almost Famous, I like a lot. And uh, Vanilla Sky, which was a, quite a bit later, I thought was an interesting movie uh, mm. with some good performances. But I thought Singles was a bit of a step down from Say Anything. And so, uh, but I would agree to you, uh, with you, to you, with you, both, that it was very... Um, it was eagerly anticipated, this movie, uh, because it was, a, for me anyways, a follow-up to say anything. Uh, so I was looking forward to it coming out. But very interestingly, we'll get to this in a second, the soundtrack came out three months before the movie came out. Because the um, what happened was the movie was filmed and Warner Brothers kind of sat on it because they didn't really know what to do with it. And then Nirvana hit it big in the fall of 1991 uh, uh, with Smells Like Teen Spirit and Nevermind. And then everybody wanted to jump on the grunge bandwagon. And then we had the yeah. explosion of these other bands uh, coming out. And so they said, okay, let's get this album so out. So you're as saying that possible. Cameron Crowe is just a dirty... 
grunge era bandwagoner. No, is that what you're saying? It, incorrect. And in fact, if you will link to the, an interesting interview with uh, Cameron Crowe, where he basically talks about why he wrote this, right? He uh, uh, was dating uh, a certain person who we'll get into in a second and uh, uh, who is from the Pacific Northwest and who is not grunge at all. No. And we will, again, we'll, we'll get to that when we go through the album. Uh, but, uh, and so he relocated there. He's sick of LA. He kind of relocated there and he loved the sound. He loved the music. He loved the atmosphere and he wanted to write, uh, uh, an, an ode to a certain city, an ode to Seattle, just like, um, Woody Allen, you know, did Manhattan and, and very, we, Woody Allen, whatever, but, um, uh, you know, but, but, uh, but other people, that's who you had to pick, huh? That's who you had <laughs> exactly. to pick. Uh, other, other people doing tributes to, um, to cities. So that's kind of where he, he came about. And so, um, that's what the movie was about. You know, we got Bridget Fonda, Campbell Scott, Kira Sedgwick, uh, Matt Dillon, as you mentioned, uh, who plays the uh, lead singer of the band Citizen Dick, uh, <laughs> and, uh, in, in all the trials and tribulations of their relationships and things like that. And of course, lots of cameos in this movie. Mm-hmm. Including, including Cameron Crowe himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, Eric Stoltz, a young Eric Stoltz, plays the mime. <laughs> Jeremy Piven is in it. Tom Skerritt. Skerritt? Skerritt. Tom Skerritt. Skerritt. Yeah. I love that man. I just watched him in Top Gun again recently. He plays the mayor. Musical cameos. Eddie Vedder plays himself. Uh, self citizen dick uncredited at the big be- at the end lane staley mike star kim tail you know those so lane staley uh, the late lane staley and mike star from alice in chains kim tail guitarist of soundgarden eddie vetter of pearl jam all in it mm-hmm. so yeah ben shepherd soundgarden so um I, I i thought the movie was okay i mean I, it's not like my I remember the soundtrack way more than I remember the movie. Interestingly, as we were kind of um, re-watching and thinking about this movie again, I was like, this seems kind of like Friends a bit. And apparently, Warner Brothers tried to turn singles into a television series, and Cameron Crowe says that singles inspired the movie, the TV show Friends. Uh, uh, I don't know okay, if that's I mean, true or not. but Look. Friends lasted what ten, 10 years, years, ten yeah. seasons. Yeah. So I mean, that's a huge. If it's true at all, that's a huge. And yep, you know, Friends. We all make fun of it now, retrospectively, except for my daughters who've spent the pandemic watching and memorizing every single line of every episode. But uh, Friends, we look back at now with the, you know, especially if you look at it from a diversity lens. If you look at it from a comedy lens, it's missing that edge. It's missing a variety of things. But at the time, there's no denying what Friends gave us. So if Singles gave us that, eh, there's something to be said there. Uh, So why don't we talk a bit about the soundtrack? Like I was saying before, I remember the soundtrack coming out way before the movie, as we just said, uh, three months beforehand. And I remember a lot of hype behind it. Like my friends talking about, oh, the single soundtrack's coming out. It's supposed to be amazing. And I remember just going to the, uh, the, you know, record store, CD store, and buying it uh, when it when it came out. What, what's your kind of memories of this this album? I I own this uh, CD. Who told me to get it? And the hype I don't remember, but I think it was something like I was such a Pearl Jam fan, and I was such a Soundgarden fan that you know you didn't have to say much more than that. And I think I would have been into the Smashing Pumpkins already. Their song "Drown." It's an eight minute song is on this album as well. It's really 
like a ridiculous soundtrack. Mm -hmm. It's kind of, I don't know, it feels like a best of, uh, it's like a dream. And just for fun, uh, you know, Jimi Hendrix is thrown into this. Well, well, let's go through. We won't go through every song but we thought we'd try this I, we got a little setup here we're going to try and play the song and we'll talk a bit about each song uh maybe we won't go through all of them but um so we'll give it a try hopefully this works so uh okay this is going to be the first song here ali on the album So, Ali, this is Wood by Allison James. Well, well, hold on. Do you want me to sing every song at the top of my lungs? Is that something you were I, interested I would, in? I would be interested in it. By my master. It also, dude, Master of Puppets was one of my favorite albums. Loved Metallica. They're bringing up the word master in the music. I don't know why I love that. Oh, yeah. Let's, let's, let's turn this up. Okay, so that's uh, Wood by Alice in Chains. Like I said, love that song. It was the first single. I, I never really heard Alice in Chains before. It's my favorite Alice in Chains song uh, that's out there. I would say that the, the same applies to me. And when I learned what it was about, uh, there's a sadness to it also. You know, a Mother Love Bone uh, had a lead singer named Andrew Wood who died in 1990, so just a year or two before. They they probably, it was fresh, his death was fresh, and they wrote this song as a tribute to him, or, or Jerry Cantrell did. And then uh, Lane Staley sings the chorus, that's why it sounds like it has this, like, you know, um, completely different element to it. You have one person singing uh, vocals, and then uh, the verses, and then Lane Staley sings the chorus, so it's, I don't know, it's a damn good song and then it appeared on another another soundtrack as well no sorry not another it's it appeared on their second studio album yeah, dirt yeah exactly um so yeah i i really like this song um so so this next song is breath by pearl jam So, Ali, this was my first exposure to Pearl Jam, was, was this song. I never heard of them before, so uh, it was kind of a big deal for me to first hear this band. It's a good, it's a good introduction. It's a good introduction. It's, uh, it's a good introduction to, uh, to this band. Because in 1990, I think 10 had come out, and 10, we talked about this, we have a, a previous episode that people can look about, look at. I, I mean, 10 for me is one of the greatest albums of all time. Mm-hmm. Just wall to wall, 
what's the word you use? Classic bankers? Uh, Stone Cold Classic. Stone Cold Classics is what you say. It's just wall to wall. It's really an unbelievable album. And and in my opinion, you know, it was impossible for, for Pearl Jam to ever match up to that, that album. But uh, Breath was an outtake, basically. So, uh, you know, knowing what we know about the music world, uh, uh, knowing what I know, uh, courtesy of my friend Q, who's a big fan and listener as well of the show, hello, basically... Uh, I don't think people made new music for this soundtrack. They just took stuff that they had lying around and uh, and c- kept the rights to all of it because then this album does appear on a reissue in 2009 of, of 10. And then um, I think it's on one of their greatest hits albums. I know that the album, the, the song you just played, Wood, was also on like a greatest hits of Alice in Chains or I think the essential Alice in Chains. So this is stuff that these bands owned. They had it kind of lying around. That's a feeling I get. And then, uh, and then it just was like, okay, you could use this for now for this soundtrack. And uh, but they all picked like amazing songs, as we're about to see. Well, let's talk about the next song. Amazing song by an amazing artist, no longer with us. Uh, this is Seasons, a track three, Chris Cornell. Let's jump ahead to this to further. Oh, I love this part though. <laughs> we'll jump ahead. So, what do you think of this, Ali? Look, man, again, uh, unbelievable song, but also like there's this this shroud of uh, sadness around it, right? Mm-hmm. Because Chris Cornell, for those who don't know, uh, lead singer and I think rhythm guitarist of Soundgarden, then later Audio Slave, and then of course a band that Asif and I geek out of, uh, geek out about, just like we feel so blessed that this band even existed. Temple of the Dog was a gift. Mm-hmm. To, to, to rock music lovers everywhere. And Temple of the Dog, you've said this before too, and I'd forgotten about this. I knew it was a tribute band dedicated to one of their late friends. It's Andrew right, Wood. Exactly. It's the same guy who I was just mentioning. Um, but it's just sad because, you know, Chris Cornell, as I, as I think about him, you know, I think it was 2017 or 2018, he after many years of struggling for depression, took his own life. And I, so I can't help but think about that as I think about these phenomenal musicians. But anyway, the better way to look at it is like we're, we're lucky to have, have had him as music fans for as long as we did. And I think this this song it just, yeah, it, it reminds you that he's a great singer, <laughs> you know? And sometimes you may, you may forget that with the harder rocking stuff from Soundgarden. So uh, yeah, I totally agree with you. 
So this next song is by Paul Westerberg. So he, the replacements, which was his big band from Minneapolis, had broken up. And this was kind of the beginning of his solo career. Now, interestingly, he's not from Seattle. So this is the first person on this uh, album that's like, I'm not really from Seattle, but I guess mm. for whatever reason, Cameron Crowe really wanted him a to be. A sound. Like, yeah. He's got a sound. I was like, Paul Westerberg doesn't really love these songs. Um, but... Uh, uh, I, I think they're both really good. It's when I mentioned to my wife that we're doing the single soundtrack, she she started singing these songs, both of these. So let's do this one. This nice. is track four, uh, Dyslexic Heart by Paul Westerberg. So what do you think of this song there, Ali? I, uh, I love it. It's super fun. And you know, you talk about why he's on the album. If Cameron Crowe is a storyteller at the end of the day, as a writer and a, a director, check out this story about, about Paul Westerberg. Late 70s, he was working as a janitor for some U.S. senator, one day, walking home from work, he hears a band practicing. They're singing Yes's Roundabout. You know that song, right? Mm -hmm. I'll be the roundabout. Mm -hmm. Anyway, we'll not sing it. Yeah. Uh, they're in some basement playing it. He talks his way into, uh, in, into the band. Uh, he convinces the singer, uh, he, he convinces them to... Uh, to basically fire the singer and then the singer quits and he joins the group. I mean, and then becomes like this great musician. I mean, it's, uh, it's insane. And they are, you know, he was a janitor for God's sake. Anyway, it's a great story. And I think at the end of the day, that's gotta have an effect on somebody who's a storyteller. Cameron mm -hmm. Crowe just probably loves that. Like his, his background. He's like, you gotta be on the album. I, I understand things like that where you're like very focused. This is the vision for something. No, but we also got to let this person in because their story is so great. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I like Paul Westberg a lot. I, I think both these songs are good. We'll play the second one in, in, in a few minutes. Uh, nope. Totally great. This Next song we're going to talk about is a cover of a Led Zeppelin song. It's called The Battle of Evermore. And for those of you who don't know who this band is, uh, I'm going to play the song and then we'll talk to me. I, I think... To, okay. I thought you meant Led Zeppelin. No. For those of you who don't know who Led Zeppelin is, you got to do some research. So uh, this is... Uh, the the band is listed as the love mongers on the, uh, on the track. So uh, mm. here's the love mongers. So 
these voices should be very, very familiar to people who are familiar with rock music. Uh, Ali, who are these people? I'm going to use the words that uh, my fellow writers used to use when I was in a writing room. Uh, when they'd hear a joke of mine they didn't like, I'm going to say, that's a miss for me. What? Dude, that's a miss. I. Battle of Evermore is one of the greatest Led Zeppelin songs off one of the greatest Led Zeppelin albums, Led Zeppelin 4. I don't think it needed to be redone, but it was redone, and I don't think it did justice to the original. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> that's fair enough. Uh, but the... It, I just find it interesting, the story of who these people are who are singing, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. That's not what you asked me. You asked me, what do I think about yeah, the song? That, that is true. That is true. Um, but uh, so who 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 is this? I want you to tell so our the listeners. Love mongers, the reason Asif is where Asif is going with yeah, this geez. is uh, sisters Anne and Nancy Wilson from the band Heart, who I love, by the way. Heart's a fantastic I love band. I uh, But I just don't love that. It's the Led Zeppelin thing. It's not their voices or anything else. It's just you—you got to do the best cover ever uh, with certain songs. So, uh, and Nancy Wilson, we're speaking about because Asif, I'll let you tell everyone. Nancy Wilson is married to Cameron Crowe, and she is the person was was married was stay stay on top of these things. Um, Yes, they are divorced. And and, uh, but at the time, uh, she was the woman from the Pacific Northwest who he kind of left LA and kind of relocated to uh, the Seattle area for. And so Mm -hmm. they didn't want to list them as heart on this for various reasons. Maybe they didn't fit in, so that's why they're called the Love Mongers. And it's a cover that they uh, did in concert, as you can tell. So I, I like well, Hart was three ladies, wasn't Hart three women? No, you're thinking of Wilson Phillips and the Dixie <laughs> Chicks. I am. No, Hart was a whole band, but the two main singers were were. were um, okay, okay, so maybe uh, no, no, Hart. Uh, come on, Barracuda. I, I I know Hart very well. I will not be mixing them up with the Wilson sisters. Okay, I mean the. Um, yeah, no, Wilson they, they are the oh boy. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You thought they were the same Wilsons. <laughs> I didn't. I did not. I never was. Okay, we're gonna get to probably my favorite uh song. It's hard because there's so many good songs in this album. Uh, but I love this song. So this is Mother Love Bone, which is the old band of of Andrew Wood. And when Andrew Wood died of a drug overdose, uh Mother Love Bone kind of fell apart, and then the kind of the embers uh, uh, became Pearl Jam, and of course the collaboration between Soundgarden and the ex-members of Mother Love Bone was Temple of the Dog. Uh, so you know this is kind of like the, uh, the it's still an in memoriam type album to Andrew Wood still, but he he appears on this with Mother Love Bone. So this is actually two songs that are combined together. So I'll try and fast forward to each part. Uh, so it's called, but the the song is listed as Chloe Dancer backslash Crown of Thorns. So you'll see it's two songs. By the way, if Asif's trying to forward to a different part of a song, God be with with us all. Yeah, right? I this mean, I hopefully on. everybody's putting put, putting up with this like technical difficulties. Oh 
Okay, so that's the first half of the song. So why don't I uh, try and fast forward to the um, Crown of Thorns part? So, Aldi, your thoughts? Well, first of all, I, I, not to mock this song at all, but this is this is a song with two names. It's called Chloe Dancer slash Crown of Thorns. It's it's two songs merged into one. Um, it kind of makes me laugh. You're not going to like this song. It makes me laugh because I don't know how well you know the movie The Wedding Singer by Adam Sandler. I've seen it about 15 times. But in, in Adam Sandler's... Um, uh, you know, he's he's trying to get back to... Um, he's not really trying to get back. He's quit being a wedding singer. And he's in a very sad place because his, his, his girlfriend left him at the altar. And he sings this song for Drew Barrymore. And it starts with like, I love you. You're the best. And then uh, he goes, it's not completed yet. And then he starts saying, you know, the song starts going... Uh, uh, somebody kill me, please. <laughs> it's called Somebody Kill Me. That's how I feel about this song a little bit because it started, it's a beautiful thing. Chloe Dancer is about Andy Wood's fiance who had planned to be a stripper so she could support the two of them. But after, you know, within an hour, she left. But it's a beautiful thing about somebody who was going to do something for the two of them. And they were like, this is what we got to do just to stay alive and, and, and like keep our head above water so that he can pursue his passion. Uh, and then Crown of Thorns is about their breakup, and 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 of course it's not good because they broke up with him, you know, going back and forth in, uh, w w with heroin, dabbling in and out of heroin, and that's eventually what he uh, he died from. So it's, it's this song is about a, a relationship ruined by drugs. So less funny than the wedding singer, yeah, song, yeah. but also like it's like. Uh, it's an interesting way to pair two songs together. It's it's like I guess it's a full story. That's the way they would look at it. Yeah, um, yeah, and the interesting thing about this song as well is you can see that Mother Love Bone wasn't quite what the grunge movement would be. They're a bit, they still have a bit of a hair metal vibe to them, especially Andrew Wood's vocals. And so I think this is the bridge between like the eighties music like the metal scene especially the hair metal scene and then what became grunge i think he is the linchpin in some ways sure and i think this is again i'm full of theories today but this song was apparently in the movie say anything which you loved 1989 film but it wasn't on right. the soundtrack right. so my theory is that this was like we couldn't get you in the soundtrack soundtrack was full right they had all these rules in the music industry no one's going to listen to an album with more than x number of songs we'll get you on the next one and so that's it feels like that's uh, i think that's did. what happened cameron crow actually said he was very oh, okay. happy Let's he had um mother love bone and, and andrew wood in in um say anything uh because of course he died and he didn't get to see his song in a move in a major motion picture so he was right. happy about that so i think that is basically what happened okay we're going to move on this is Quite possibly my favorite Soundgarden uh, song. You okay? I, lo right. I love. You it. keep saying that. Over I know, over, but, yes, but okay. I, I just love this song. Okay, this is <laughs> Birth Ritual. Everything. I'll have to fast forward it because the intro is a bit long. Long intro.
I know the intro was long, but you kind of have to listen to it to get to that first, you know, drum and, and guitar mm-hmm. uh, riff. It's so good. That riff's so good. So good. So good. Uh, and uh, yeah, they performed the song in the movie. Uh, singles uh soundgarden does uh speaking like yoda there but um i don't know what do you think of this one ali i already told you what I, I love think. it yeah. i know no i'm a big fan i'm a big fan when i was deep into this music that riff man ready to steal a car when you hear a riff like that no <laughs> i think that, that's Fantastic. great um so i know you guys are going to think that i keep saying this about um all the songs we were listening to this next song is my favorite Pearl Jam song. Uh, I still think it's the best one. Again, as Ali said, it was kind of an outtake. It was kind of just like a quick thing that they, they threw together. Uh, but I think it's it's the best Pearl Jam song. Uh, it starts off so well. So this is a State of Love and Trust. Ali, your thoughts? Uh, such a good song. Yeah. Such a good song. And by the way, this is a little bit of trivia for people. If you're going to listen to that song, you listen to the one from the single soundtrack. Because even Jeff Ament of Pearl Jam said that the version of State of Love and Trust with uh, Dave Cruzen on drums is so much better than what ended up being released because they released it on their own afterwards. Totally agree. Um, yeah. So we're getting now to the, the latter half of the album. I don't know if we, we need to go through every single track uh, that's well, left. Well, I think there's one Chicago area yeah, band. There is. Okay, so there's two. Play. So uh, we'll just go through what some of the other songs are before we get to the, uh, maybe we'll play the last two. So we got Overblown by Mud Honey. Mud Honey is one of these original Seattle bands. Like they're the real godfathers of the grunge kind of movement. I never really liked this song or liked Mud Honey very much, so I think we can skip over that. Waiting for Somebody is the second song in the album by Paul Westerberg, another great catchy song. And then there's, as you said, this random Jimi Hendrix, you know, May This Be Love song uh, by Hendrix, like it's it's his original version. Um, Hendrix is from the Pacific Northwest, so it makes sense, I guess. I don't know. It seems a bit strange that it was on there. So I think we can kind of skip over those uh, three or four songs and get to the last two. So again, this is another one of my favorite songs. It's hard for me to pick which is my favorite song on the album, uh, but I love this song. This is Nearly Lost You by The Screen. Trees. I wasn't a huge Screaming Trees fan. I know lots of people were, uh, but this song, again, starts off so well. I remember the video very well, the kind of playing in a forest or whatever. Um, so let's listen to it first, then you can tell me your thoughts, Kaylee. Yeah, sure. Thoughts, Ollie? I love that song, dude. I love that song. 
Yeah, it's uh, it's just so catchy, so hard hitting. I don't know. I, I think I think it's great. Like I said, I didn't don't know if I really heard a lot of their other stuff after that, but uh, mm-hmm. for me, that was that was that was key. And uh, that brings us to the last track on the album. And uh, I'll start playing it now. We can kind of talk over it because again, it has a very long intro. So uh, this is Drown by the Smashing Pumpkins, written by your good buddy, Billy Corgan. He's not mm-hmm. your good buddy. Uh, one thing we'll have to actually talk about, you know, Billy Corgan, I don't know if you know this, is a huge wrestling fan. Uh, oh, huge. Yeah. And so much so he bought his own wrestling promotion. So uh, it's, it's uh, yeah. So, but uh, this was my first introduction to the Smashing Pumpkins. Yeah. Let's just listen to a little bit of this and then we'll uh, talk about it. So this was like my first introduction to them. Like I said, I wasn't sure to make of this band. I think it's very different. I don't think Smashing Pumpkins is grunge at all, to be honest with you. Really? I don't put them in the same category. I just think it's different. He has a very specific way of kind of writing songs. And this is a perfect example. Starts off slowly, 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 then builds right to this hmm. shendo at the end. Um, and you slowly, slowly building, right? So I don't know. I, I But I, I love the band. This is my first introduction. But uh, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I do love the band. I had their first two albums, and I, I thought so highly of them. They were so cool and so different. And it's true, they weren't classically grunge. Like, it's not a Nirvana album. Um, not all of I think they were much more experimental. There's another element, too, that I had to bring up, and I didn't bring up with Soundgarden earlier. You know, when you first meet uh, Smashing Pumpkins, you know, it's Billy Corgan and it's James Iha. A Japanese guy, you know, and I think he grew up in the in the suburbs of Chicago too. I don't think you. I mean, and Smashing Pumpkins has another element, which was you know Melissa Oftemar, who went on to be a part of whole. Yeah, well, She's it was Darcy Montreal. beforehand, like Darcy, and then uh, Melissa Oftemar. Right, and Darcy Retsky looked like the name Gretzky. I mean, you just felt like you knew these people, and to have like a Japanese guy, American-born uh, Japanese guy in the band. There was something about that. And, and I felt the same way about Soundgarden. I, I, I don't think you can tangibly quantify what it meant for Soundgarden, who also had a Japanese uh, founding member, and then Kim Tail, who was an Indian guy. I looked at that guy and I was like, I know that guy. That's that's my people, right? That he was he's Carolyn, he's from Carolyn, India, but but you know, all American born. And just to see um you know, the the children of immigrants in these, like, massive bands. I don't know. It should have gotten me playing guitar is what it should have done. I'm a loser. But uh, it was, you know, I, you, I can't take away what that meant for me connecting with these bands. Did I need it? Of course not, because I love Pearl Dram as well, who had uh, no, you know, children of immigrants that I knew of, uh, or not visibly anyway. But there was something about that that really was just so super cool to me. Yeah, uh, and you know we should probably do a full episode on uh, Smashing Pumpkins at one point. Uh, there's Siamese Dream. We'll have the uh, 30th anniversary next year, so maybe we'll do a Smashing Pumpkins. Let's hope we're alive, bruh. 
We live hard and fast. <laughs> That's right. You never know what's going to happen. Another pandemic? Who knows? But uh, so this is it, Ali. We got to the end of the uh, single soundtrack. Again, it's one of my It's Is it one of the best soundtrack albums? Maybe. Um, it's, it's certainly one of my favorite compilation albums with a bunch of different people put together. Again, Cameron Crowe has such a big role in this, right? He's the one who selected the bands and put everything together, sequenced the uh, the uh, album. Uh, I love it. Like I said, I still, I still like, Three of these songs, are, or four of them, are some of my favorite songs ever. So, um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that hopefully people find it still relevant 30 years later. It's the best of the best. If you're, if you want to, you know, remember what grunge was all about. If you want to reintroduce yourself. If you want to introduce yourself for the first time to like, let me get a feeling for the era. This is, I mean. This is almost not a good starting point because it's so good and you'll go, you, you risk going down uh, from this. But I think if you want to have one album that really exemplifies, I don't know if it's on uh, Spotify, I don't know where you can find it, but but to add this to your playlist, like a, a driving playlist to uh, to annoy the hell out of your children in the backseat, if that's what you like doing, this is the one. This is like really a phenomenal album. All right, moving on to our back half of the show, huh? The back nine of this golf course that we call uh, Doctor versus Comedian. This episode, uh, this part of it, is a request. Asif, the request comes from you, me, exactly. Yes, exactly. Uh, sometimes I make requests, and we're talking about borderline personality disorder. And the reason I, I requested this of Asif is, um, A, I have some experience with it myself. Um, I know a number of people, you know, more people than I, than I feel that I should know who, who have uh, struggled with borderline personality in relationships. And, uh, and also I think it's something that, uh, is, it's a term that's used very casually, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, ah, he probably has borderline. Ah, she is borderline. Doesn't that? And I think people probably hear that, and either a they don't know what that means. I know many people don't, and and use the term. I I barely know what it means, and I've researched it quite a bit. Or b uh, they're using it incorrectly, and with all the variety of different sort of personality disorders that are, you know, it's it's another one of these things. It feels like twenty years ago nobody was talking about personality disorders. Did they exist? Yes. Did they exist in these numbers? I don't know. I wanted to ask you. Uh, do we just know more about them? Have, is this something that's been around for 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 centuries? So I I wanted to talk about that to to clear some things up a little bit, and and also us if you know. When a friend of mine was really uh, suffering um, with, with, with the borderline personality of his uh, fiance, and he had actually introduced me to this concept, and I retrospectively was able to say, oh my God, I went through all of that. Not knowing what I was going through at the time. I went through all of that in a relationship. He told me he was on a website, uh, and it was a forum, and it's called bpdfamily.com. And so that, that, that forum, that, that chat group, provided him with a, with a level of comfort that is, um, that is unmeasurable. Like, you know, just to know that other people were going through the same thing and suffering and to offer them his, his words of experience and to get that. Now, the problem is, so I went to BPD Family and I said, hey, is this thing still um, there? And 
you know, for me, the, the problem with BPD is right there on the website. You know, right away, there's a scrolling sort of page. Was your mother emotionally needy and hurtful? Your mother may have had borderline personality disorder. Loving girlfriend, suddenly resentful and distant? Your partner may have borderline personality disorder. Was your father controlling and self-centered? Your father may have had... I mean, I really don't... That's, to me, that, that feels very, very unhelpful. Because at that point, you know, I mean, most people probably had a, a, a partner who was distant at some point. Mm-hmm. Most people probably had a father who was controlling at some point. And I, 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 I feel like we run the risk of labeling every single thing as a personality disorder. Mm-hmm. With all that in mind, I wanted, to, uh, I wanted to have this episode where we talk about borderline personality disorder, what it is, what defines personality disorders in general, and, and, and you know, how often it's seen and, and what are the, you know, what, what's the recourse. So mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> let's start with, with what it is and, and what you know about it, you know, because I also wanted to know what age uh, you see people with, because here's another problem with borderline personality disorder. Most people who have it, from what I understood, don't know that they have it. It takes somebody else to tell you that, right? Yeah, I mean, everything you said is true. So let's, I guess, go through some of the definitions, etc. And let's start maybe with talking about personality disorders. And there is some kind of controversy about personality disorders in the medical literature. They have been well established for many years. Everybody in medicine knows about personality disorders. But there is sometimes a stigma attached to it because there is a bit of a um, thought process that there's nothing you could do about them. And so why are we labeling people with this? So there's the issue of, of labeling and stigma and that there's nothing you can do about it. So that's kind of why people get a bit worried about, about using these diagnoses and labels. I think it's... When you say people, do you include the medical community in that? Okay. Yes, yes, okay. yes, yes, exactly. And people may be hesitant about getting a diagnosis, but, and I think we should do a full episode maybe on personality disorders. The other thing is people are probably wondering why we didn't tie this into a recent case that has been in the news, a court case, because some people in that uh, court case are alleged to have personality disorders, but the key word is alleged. I don't think those were, that's kind of outside experts watching this court case and being like, oh, I think this person has this, this, this. Well, you don't know. You're not their doctor. So don't pretend that you know what what you're talking about. So I didn't really want to get into that. Uh, And so that's why we did not pair this with this uh, court case that's been in the news. So If we think of personality as the thoughts and feelings and behavior characteristic of an individual, then a personality disorder would be a persistent, pervasive, aberrant pattern of perceiving or relating to the outside world, to you and your individual personality and its relation to the outside world. That, by definition, has to lead to difficulty with social right. relationships so when you say functioning. A, so you need to have a problem right right it makes me think know, of a lens a problem. right you see everything through a certain lens right yes. that's a, yeah okay yes that, 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 that's a very good way of putting it but again if i saw things through a certain lens and then interacted with everybody you know 
appropriately and there's no concerns, no dysfunction, then who right, cares, of course. right? That's just the way I look at the world. But when it causes dysfunctioning, especially with social relationships, then it's a problem, right? As I always tell patients, it's something's only a problem if it's a problem, mm -hmm. right? So, uh, so, and then we have these different types of personality disorders. So we have borderline personality disorder, antisocial personality disorder, histrionic personality disorder, narcissistic personality NPD, disorder. NPD, they so, call it in the biz. Familiar with that one as well, I unfortunately. I didn't know. Well, yeah, you are um, in the in show business and the yes. entertainment profession. So I'm sure you've seen. So both histrionic and narcissistic personalities, I'm sure there's quite a few of those in the entertainment uh, business. But let's maybe save that for, for another sure. episode because there's so much to talk about with just borderline personality disorder. The key with borderline personality is emotional instability. If you had to pick two words to describe it, it would be emotional instability. So they have patients with this have difficulty regulating their emotions and their experiences. And this emotional ability can be so extreme and the emotions so extreme that death or self-harm seems like a reasonable option. That's how extreme it is. So uh, you don't have to have these thoughts of suicidality or self-harm or acts of that to be diagnosed with borderline, but it is one of the criteria, which I'll get to in a second. So people with borderline personality will have a very high sensitivity to emotional cues, intense reactions. Some might say an overreaction, but that's a judgmental term, right? So just intense reaction, long-lasting feelings, uh, and then this problems with your sense of self and insecurity and emptiness about yourself. And uh, you'll see, and maybe you've experienced this or your friends have, the chaotic relationships, yeah. right? And in fact, you told me that there's a book uh, called Walking on mm -hmm. Eggshells. It's known as the Bible, one of two sort of Bibles on the subject. And, and uh, I don't know many people who own that book, but they were sort of desperate to... Um, to find out what's wrong in their relationship. And, and, you know, as the person who doesn't have BPD, you're, you're sort of along for a, a pretty rocky ride and you wonder a lot if, is it you, are you the problem or how can you deal with this? And also, why didn't I see this before? So, um, from everything I know, very, very valuable book, by the way, if you look it up, it's $9, which to me is like, that's kind, you know, somebody's not trying to profiteer over something that could really help and change people's lives. So that, that's a good one. Might as well mention the other book then, Ali. Uh, what's the other book called? Yeah, it's, it's a book that is emblematic of that push-pull nature of having borderline personality disorder. So it is called I Hate You, Don't Leave Me. So this is uh, an interesting, it's an interesting topic, right? Because a lot of the things you have not had personal experience with, uh, but this one you have. So I'm going to go through the stuff. I'm going to kind of pretend that you don't know anything about it. I think that's I think the that's easiest best. way for you our wanna, listeners. You don't want me no. sitting here like a know-it-all. Uh, well, I heard yeah. my sources tell me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. So uh, basically, you know, uh, uh, as we were talking about offline, there's this DSM-5 criteria, which is uh, the, the newest criteria for diagnosis, uh, diagnosing various mental health uh, illnesses. Hey, listen, if anybody's new to our podcast, the DSM is the Diagnostic Systems Manual, yes? Statistical, Statistical manual. manual, which doesn't feel like it has a place in medicine. Uh, and, and so when I was uh, experiencing 
uh, you know, borderline personality disorder in a relationship. It was DSM four. We were only at version four, but there is this checklist that you can go to. Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So you need to have all those things we talked about, the instability in the relationships, the self-image problems. Uh, and basically they have nine criteria that you have to meet. I'm going to go over them and try and simplify them a bit. The first criteria is a fear of abandonment. Okay, I think that's relatively straightforward. Second is what we talked about, emotional instability and mood reactivity. And you can have these highs and lows where you have episodic um, low mood, that irritability or anxiety. And this can go, this can last a few hours or days. It's not bipolar disorder. Bipolar disorder, people always call some bipolar in quotation marks uh, when they say someone's mood is very labile. But bipolar disorder you go through weeks or months of low mood then you get the mania then so we again we can do a whole episode and, and we should this, because again that's well, another one yeah. that's very casually and flippantly uh, yes i think yeah. he's bipolar it, i think she's bipolar yeah and inappropriately sure, so uh the third criteria is inappropriate or intense anger and this can be manifested as displays of anger or temper or recurrent physical fights. And again, we're gonna talk a bit about how it is diagnosed in men as well. And sometimes it's underdiagnosed and so we think it's it's just women, but it's it's not. And so maybe the physical fight that that's, that's uh, maybe more of a male thing, though uh, women as well can engage in that. The next one is a pattern of unstable social relationships. And then there's this back and forth. And this is what Ali was uh, referring to with the, uh, I hate you, please don't leave. Idealizing someone, idealizing their relationship, and then devaluing them, hating them, and just going back and forth, even within a, one conversation. The next one is an insecure identity or lack of a stable sense of self. And then the next is repeated acts of self-injury or self-harm, suicide attempts, uh, suicidal thoughts. The next criteria is persistent risk-taking or impulsive behavior. So this could be a couple things. It could be binge eating, risky sexual practices, risky like driving uh, or, or speeding, spending a lot of money, you know, credit card debt and things like that, or substance abuse. And again, we'll get into males versus females, but substance abuse may be a bit more common in, in males. Two last things. One is transient dissociative symptoms. So dissociative symptoms occur in psychiatry where you have uh, derealization, feeling you're not yourself, feeling you're looking at yourself from outside your body, or even having amnesia to certain events or paranoid ideation. So that can also be seen. And then the last criteria is chronic feelings of emptiness. So you have to have five right. of those. And you see how that's important, right? Because if somebody goes, wait, binge eating, I ate an right. entire ice cream. Do I have, right? Like it just gets very common. So I'm, I didn't know it was five. Right. I thought it was more. I thought you were supposed to have, you know, nine, nine out of 10 or eight out of nine or something like that. But anyway. Yeah, five or five or more. So yeah, exactly. And I think that's a really good point as well. And, and you know, when people are labeling people as having this, like as in lay people, labeling other people as having it is probably not correct and you probably need to have all of these th these things together. the dsm-5 it's out there people take a look mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh i think you know I, I, i'm not sure if you wanted to go further into that but i think people would be you know curious as to why certain people have this particular personality disorder and why others don't like where does bpd come from and does it always come from something specific yeah it's it's a good question you know as usual we don't 
totally no. Mm-hmm. We know that there's risk factors okay. for it. So the risk factors can include an early life adverse experience or childhood event. Uh, so that could be trauma, uh, psychological, physical, um, sexual trauma early on in life can be a risk factor. Uh, bullying, uh, victimization, or difficult peer relationships in adolescence, low socioeconomic status, having a history of hyperactivity in childhood can be associated. Mm-hmm. And then there are some parenting factors. So poor attachment to your to your parents. Interestingly, maternal inconsistency and upbringing and high over-involvement, which are kind of opposite things, right? They're not always there for me or they're over-involved. Or you could have parental alcohol abuse or drug problems or or if they have major depressive disorder or post-traumatic stress disorder, that can all be risk That when a parent of a child who then Correct. goes on to have, okay, Correct. all right. What's important here, Ali, is we can't entirely explain it. It's not only caused by trauma or neglect mm. during childhood. Because obviously there's people who have severe trauma in childhood who do not develop this. So they can't be the only thing. So, you know, in mental health and in neurology as well, we have this biopsychosocial model where you have these uh, sociological and, and psychological risk factors uh, and an interaction between your biological self. So your genes, mm. you know, your, your how you were born, your, your temperament and things like that. And those two things can interact. Okay, I'll just add something here that that I was uh, made aware of. You know, uh, thinking about one of my friends in particular, he would always say that his partner would constantly echo the sentiments of, you know, I'm not even supposed to be here. You know, I'm not even mm. supposed to be here, meaning on, on mm-hmm. earth. And he would say, why do you always say that? And she would say, well, look, I don't know what the difference was, but she had, you know, two siblings who were like, you know, whatever it was, 13 years and 15 years older than her. So she mm-hmm. felt like she was a mistake. And mm, yeah. so I'm not supposed to be here. And so we we dug into that a little bit. And, and you know, what we had found at the time was that it's a lot of like this fear of abandonment or a fear of like how, you know, you're not really meant to be loved. And then that's where that push and pull comes from. Like, I know you're going to leave me anyway, or I'm not mm-hmm. worthy of love anyway, so you might as well leave. But but what mm-hmm. you're saying here, Asif, is that is only a small part of it and not even a necessary part of it. Is that right? Well, no, I, I think those symptoms that you mentioned are very relevant, but it doesn't necessarily have to be due to it could very well be in the person you're talking about, about, you know, there's a big age difference between them and their siblings. Like that could very well be it. That was the genesis of it, but it doesn't have to be. That's all I'm saying. Got it. And what's interesting is, you know, of course I'm a neurologist, so I'm interested in the neurobiology of this. Mm. And so the thought, and you can kind of just relate that to the example you just said, is that basically people with BPD have aberrant responses to emotional stimuli and kind of emotional dysregulation. So you can't regulate your emotions when there's associated stressors. And that's basically what what's thought to be the cause. Now you can do various studies to look at this. So you can do PET scanning, you can do functional MRI. And what they found is you have this increased activation of the amygdala. Okay, so the amygdala is a part of the brain that is involved in regulating emotions. It's involved in a lot of things, including like the uh, your response to threatening stimuli, like the fight or uh, fight response. And so they 
did one study where they showed patients with BPD and then uh, people who don't have BPD uh, pictures where they were just kind of unpleasant pictures, you know, negative type uh, pictures. And basically they found changes in, in activation in people who don't have BPD with various areas of the brain uh, in terms of the frontal lobes. So these are kind of cognitive areas uh, that help you kind of overcome these adverse images. So in other words, what I'm trying to say is- Yes, do tell us. People with, with BPD have this dysfunction of what's called the frontolimbic network. That's what's theorized. So in other words, when they're faced with something unpleasant or uncomfortable, they can't use cognitive uh, skills to say, okay, well, you know what, this isn't that big of a deal. I should calm down. I should try and take the other person's viewpoint. I should do this. I should do that. That extra level of being able to connect those cognitive networks is 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 impaired mm. in people with BPD. So what I'm saying is that there is a neurobiological reason for this. So sometimes this helps, right? And we're going to talk about why you'd want to diagnose somebody with this uh, and why someone might want to get this diagnosis. But it's and but it reinforces that there is a, a neuronal circuitry level an issue. You know, and let me ask something based on my own experience here too, just to clear something up. A because of what you're just saying, and also because one of the DSM um, traits or characteristics was unstable social relationships, right? But in my experience, and in what limited you know experience I had with through friends as well, what I had, what I remember reading was that. This is particular to um, relationships between two people. So relations. So so, mm -hmm. uh, and and what I mean is like um, relationships with love as part of them, right? Like like partners, basically. Uh, and this might be wrong, so I want to cl clarify this. But my understanding was that you know, if two people are hooking up occasionally, uh, you know, just casually, you would not even know that one of those people has borderline personality if they did. If that hookup becomes sort of seeing each other more seriously, signs of it start to show. If those that couple uh, is, is, is serious, let's say they move into with each other, they get engaged, all of a sudden you see much more of it, marriage, much more children, even more. And there was this idea of stakes. And as the stakes of a relationship increase, so too does the sort of presence of these, 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 these um, patterns in a relationship, these, these problematic patterns and problematic reactions. But when we talk about social, is this something you could also see in a workplace? Is this something you could also see with a sibling? That's a good point. I, I think what you said is correct. The higher the stakes, the higher the emotional mm -hmm. stakes, the more you see it. So you may not see it in all environments, uh, but the, the more emotional stakes there are, or the more that they're responding to things emotionally and you create these heightened emotions, that's when you'll see it more. So it could occur in those other things as well. And it, it's a good point that you're making because there is an overlap with PTSD. We could talk a bit about these comorbidities, things that is about 40% of people will also have, uh, who have BPD will also have PTSD. Uh, and, and so of course, PTSD is also this heightened emotional awareness mm. due to a, a trauma as well. And so that may bleed more into other things, whereas relationships is often, is often kind of synonymous. The tr difficulty with the relationships is 
you know, synonymous part of the definition of BPD. Sure. Yeah. I mean, because also I remember a, a friend approaching his partner's parents, his partner's siblings and explaining this is the relationship had gotten so bad that he had to speak to her family about it. And mm -hmm, they mm -hmm. quite literally had no clue what he was talking about. Like mm -hmm, they really mm -hmm. sat together and tried to go back and like, did we ever see any signs of this? And um, this guy wound up sounding a little, you know, crazy, like he was inventing stuff because they had no clue and no signs. So I always remember that, mm -hmm. that it was so specific to the romantic relationship um, and, and didn't come out anywhere else with family. So I just thought I'd bring that up. But let, can we talk about the uh, prevalence of BPD? Because as you mentioned, you said 40%. There's the comorbidity with PTSD, and I'm sure there is comorbidities with other personality disorders, other uh, experiences, other you know psychological I issues. But um, I, I, so I don't even know if you're able to measure it accurately. But how many people in society will will have it or wind up having it? Really good question. So in the U.S., uh, they estimate the prevalence is about 0.5 to 5.9 percent in the general population. Interestingly, I mentioned this before, there's no evidence that it's more common in women, even though that's an assumption that many people make. There's no evidence that really supports that. Interestingly, in clinical populations, so again, attending a psychiatric uh, clinic visit or a hospital visit, it has a prevalence of 10% of all psychiatric outpatients and 15 to 25% of all psychiatric inpatients. If you look at primary care doctors, so family physicians, nurse practitioners, the prevalence of borderline personality was four times higher than the general population. So that's an interesting mm. finding, but it suggests that maybe individuals with borderline are more frequent users of medical care. That's why they're seen more often in, in these clinical populations. But getting back to what you were asking before about the comorbidities, so it's also comorbid with mood disorders like depression, anxiety, and substance abuse, uh, as well as PTSD, as we talked about. But interestingly, if you get back to the male and female thing, there are male and female differences with respect to these comorbidities. So substance abuse is more common for men and eating disorders are more common for women. So again, you may be mistaking substance abuse and just seeing that and not really realizing that, for example, a man may have borderline personality. Mm -hmm. And of course, the biggest concern, like we talked about, is suicide uh, in these patients. The mortality rate from suicide is 8 to 10%, which is 50 times higher than the general population. And BPD is reported to be associated with 9 to 33% of all completed suicides, depending on the study you uh, you read. So definitely concerning. Is there a genetic component? If somebody knows that they have BPD, should they be concerned that their child might have it? Or is it does not work that way? There is, yeah, it's a good question. There is a genetic component. It's, first of all, we don't have a gene for it, like we have for, say, cystic fibrosis mm -hmm. or muscular dystrophy. Uh, but there is a genetic component. So if they look at people uh, with BPD in their first degree relatives or parents, siblings, children, uh, they do have an increased risk compared to the general population. So there is likely a genetic component. But then again, if people are all part of the same household and things like that, it can become difficult to separate that out. But there are studies that do suggest there is a genetic risk. It's just that we don't have a gene and it's not 100%. Sure. So it's definitely not just because 
your first degree relative has it that you'll have it that's definitely right true. but it's it's if you're you know one of your parents has bpd they may show signs of these variety of things whatever it might be you know um self-harm or 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 you know um moods or you know basically causing you as a child some difficulty and that may also lead to some personality right, right? like mm-hmm. it's it's like your your mm-hmm. your mm-hmm. external factors but it's not that external it's right in your own home it's almost an internal right. factor yeah. exactly okay. yeah what is the treatment and i ask you knowing what the treatment is because i looked into this um it's it's not an easy answer but yeah let's talk about how this can be treated and also let's talk about the fact that people who have it often would not be aware they might even be reading about it and be like this is not something i have can you talk about that a little bit yeah i think this is kind of both those questions are related to each other so why would you diagnose somebody with it right why would someone want to get a diagnosis of this and part of it it can help them to understand and explain why they feel a certain way because it does, certainly doesn't feel good to have all these things these uh, volatile relationships sense of a poor sense of self feelings of emptiness and of course suicide and self-harm so that's one thing but the second thing is there is treatment for it and i think a lot of people physicians and otherwise lay people think that there's no treatment for these personality disorders so why you're just labeling me and that's it but but there is treatment so i think that's probably the most important thing to get across for physicians and for patients who have it that there is something that you can do about it the prevailing notion that there is no treatment is that because there's no pill for it is it because there's no easy treatment is that what really well that's a good point yes there so in other words medications should not be used for the primary treatment of borderline personality disorder because of the lack of established efficacy that's been shown in many trials and systematic reviews so the mainstay of treatment is psychotherapy and we can get i mean let's let's talk about it because you can do that but it's a lot of work and a lot of resources that's involved okay i'd like to know what that means because i i think a lot of people won't know what psychotherapy is compared to you know just just therapy or you know just seeing yes. a psychologist what is psychotherapy specifically yeah well i mean psychotherapy is just another another word for that psychological therapy but there's a specific one that we're using in this which is called dialectical behavior therapy so these are just types of psychological therapy so let's we talked about a different one so this is dbt dialectical behavior therapy but we talked about cbt which is cognitive behavioral therapy when we talked about ocd so CBT focuses on how to change unhelpful thoughts and behaviors. But DBT is different. And the D, the dialectical, it means the existence of opposites and the acknowledgement of opposites. So in DBT, people are taught two seemingly opposite strategies. One is acceptance. Your experiences and behaviors are valid. So all the things that someone with BPD experiences are valid. You don't invalidate their thoughts and feelings, but they also are taught change. So they're taught acceptance and change that you can make positive changes to manage your emotions and move ahead. So this, these dual, perhaps opposite strategies of acceptance and change is what forms this dialectical behavior therapy. So it's, it's uh, what has been shown through many trials to be, the effective treatment there's other ones too but the mainstay of treatment 
And to give you an example of how intensive it is, I'll use an example from the Center for Addiction for Mental Health, CAMH, in uh, Toronto. And they outline basically what they would do to do this DBT for, for, for a patient. So they're upfront. It's usually a one-year commitment. Uh, you can do shorter programs, but the, their mainstay is a, is a one-year commitment. So here's the different components of it. There's five components. There's a skills training group, which is you have a therapist and a group of other people with BPD, and you have to practice in between sessions. Each session takes place once a week for two and a half hours, and they basically give you a skills curriculum, and it takes... 24 weeks to get through the full curriculum and they often repeat it then once so that's 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 how they get to a year and they learn a bunch of things in this group mindfulness which you know we've talked about before being present uh in in situations distress tolerance how to tolerate these very uh, intense emotions interpersonal effectiveness uh what how you can say no how you can say yes how you can uh, maintain self-respect and how to and then the last one is emotional regulation so that's all in the group then they also say you need to have individual psychotherapy uh which you know you meet with a, a psychotherapist weekly for 60 to 90 minutes and you discuss your your know, goals and, and um and opportunities for for moving forward then they also have what's called in-the-moment coaching, where they use telephone coaches uh, for real-life coaching, for in-the-moment support. Like if you're feeling stressed, you're feeling things are getting out of control, you can call this person and they give you kind of the skills in the moment to deal with day-to-day -day life. Then they try and teach the person uh, what's called case management strategies. And basically they want people to kind of reflect on their own life and be their own case manager. So like, how would you address if you're coming to yourself with this mm. issue, right? Like, so to have some, some self-actualization about that. And then there's a DBT consultation team. And this is to support the people who provide DBT. So it's the therapists and case managers get together and they, um, help each other managing their burnout and sharing their knowledge specific to a patient. Uh, because it can be sometimes difficult uh, for healthcare practitioners when um, trying to treat borderline personality disorder patients. So they wanna also support the healthcare practitioners. So those are like five different components uh, of this. And you can see how intensive this sure. is in terms of the treatment and how much work it takes for the patient. But it feels like, and I say this with no judgment to people suffering with, with BPD, but it feels like one thing is missing here. To me, would it not be valuable to also have somebody's partner there if they are indeed in a relationship? I mean, given that this comes out more in relationships, almost exclusively in relationships when the stakes are high, is there, you know what I mean? Because uh, are you a reliable narrator if you have BPD telling people, like, yes, you can be very frustrated with the fact that you have these reactions that don't feel appropriate in relationships. Uh, and you can be frustrated with your own sense of self and emptiness and all this. But But wouldn't there be some benefit to have the partner there to say that when I say this, this is what I hear back. And when we, when this kind of situation happens, this is how, how the reaction goes. I think that might occur at the beginning, uh, uh, when you're being diagnosed with BPD, they might take other, um, you know, friends, relatives, uh, partners, you know, 
together. But we're talking about the treatment stage, right? So you've already been diagnosed. Right, right, right. And you go with the potential that the person has accepted the diagnosis and wants treatment. Like most mental health treatments, the person has to be willing to, you know, to use quotation marks, do the work, mm. which is an overused phrase, but but be willing to, to change and make a commitment to it. As we said, it's a lot of work. So that I think that's where we're at now. The other stuff may may occur earlier, but th- this is uh, once the person's accepted, this is the diagnosis, this is what I want to do about it. Got it. In the long run, how successful is the treatment and you know, what happens to people with BPD? I think we already know the worst case is suicide. Uh, but for those who get treatment, uh, mm-hmm. what's the prognosis? Yeah, it's people do improve over time. That's been shown, but it's the improvements are gained slowly, usually over long-term treatment. So as we always tell patients, it's a marathon, not a sprint, mm. right? This will take time to improve over time. And in fact, if you look at the time course of the prognosis, Patients have this adolescent onset and then it peaks in young adulthood. And then usually borderline personality disorder attenuates over your lifetime. But you can still have impairment, continued impairment in social functioning. And there is a high recurrence rate uh, after remission, uh, even after treatment. The risk factors that are associated with not achieving remission or having a worse prognosis is abuse, whether it be emotional, physical, or sexual as an adult, sexual assault during childhood, sexual abuse during childhood, or a longer duration of illness. Now, you can't do a lot about those things. These, those are um, unfortunate risk factors that have happened to an individual person. But the longer duration of illness is probably the key, right? And we've seen this in other things we've talked about, for example, in conversion disorder or functional neurologic disorder. The longer duration of symptoms, the more difficult it can be to treat. So again, I think we know that with uh, long-term treatment, you can make these gains over time. Uh, And we know that if you've had a shorter duration of illness, that's better. So that's why it's important to diagnose patients early on and and try and get them involved in treatment uh, early on. So again, this kind of goes back to what we were talking about before. Why are you labeling somebody? Why are you stigmatizing them? Because there is a treatment and we know that intervening earlier is better. Any resources you would recommend to people who feel like they are going through this themselves or, 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 or partnered with somebody who's going through it? Listen, you actually said it. You uh, knew, um, I knew a bit about this from a medical point of view, but you knew about it from your own research, Ali. I, 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 it didn't come out during our conversation because I was doing most of the talking, but you actually know quite a bit about this uh, more than I do. And so I think those two books, I've asked other people and they're like, they said what you said. These are the Bibles uh, in terms of understanding what's going on with BPD. So stop walking on eggshells and I hate you, don't leave me. And I, I think I would refer people to those. We'll put in links as well to some good review articles uh, as well as the CAMH uh, website that people can check out. All right. Thanks, man. I hope that cleared up things about, uh, you know, at at the very least, I think we owe it to people who are truly suffering with these, uh, as I said, personality disorders that are truly no uh, fault of their own in almost, you know, most cases, this is tied back to something they were not responsible for. So um, I think the, the, the flippant use 
of uh, of terms like BPD or their bipolar or whatever. It's um, it it doesn't serve uh, it doesn't serve the greater good. It doesn't serve any any purpose at all. So uh, I think you you did a good job clearing that up at least this time. And of course, good news for us, sad news for society. There's a lot to talk about with personality disorders, and I'm I'm sure we're going to revisit at least one or two of them. You know, you want to talk about my experience, as you said, in the comedy world, narcissistic personality disorder. We can, not just comedians, but we can. We can yeah, do a oh, episode on that my one. friend in me- in medicine as well. It's very prevalent, so we'll put that on the list for the next couple of months. I think it would be a good follow up yeah. to this. Uh, but let us know what you guys thought about this episode. Again, very curious about your thoughts about the single soundtrack, uh, as well as uh, borderline personality. Uh, do you guys care about the single soundtrack at all? Were you interested mm. in that? And BPD, let us know what, what your thoughts are. And uh, if you have any questions or things you guys want us to cover, let us know. DrVComedian at gmail.com. Reach out to us on social media as well. DrVComedian on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. We are everywhere. Ali's book comes out September 27th, is that correct? September 27th is 100% correct. And then Ali will have a tour coming up in the fall. We'll also be, maybe we'll preview that a little bit as well as we get closer to uh, that tour date as well. But remember that although I'm a doctor, I'm not your doctor. Medical issues we talk about are for your interest and information only, and they're not medical advice. Please consult your medical professionals for actual medical advice. Thanks for listening. Bye.